Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke that my English teacher mother would approve of. Knock, knock. Who's there? Two. To who? To whom? I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. You just got a joke from author Heidi Julevitz. That'll help break the ice. We'll hear more from her later. Plus, we speak with comedian Amy Schumer about sexism, God, and the deviants who run public radio. Wait, who told her about us? I think my leather mask was a dead giveaway. Don't wear that to work. Also coming up, we speak with the director of a new documentary about Kurt Cobain. NPR's own Cokie Roberts tells us how to behave, and comedian Greg Proops lists the smartest people in the world. You might be one of them, but first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont launching his bid for the presidency. Baltimore's mayor and police faced harsh public criticism after a night of rioting. Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Manny Pacquiao. It's being called the fight of the century. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is contributing editor at the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this week? I thought I would talk about the possible real-life inspiration for Jane Austen's Mr. Darcy. Oh. Are people still talking? People are still talking about this. Always. It's amazing. He's a very Always. popular character. Teen steam Never for English old. literature majors across the world. <laughs> exactly. Although for the non-English majors, maybe we should remind people who Mr. Darcy is. Well, Mr. Darcy is basically the ultimate tall, dark, and handsome hero who starts off very proud and standoffish, and the heroine wins his heart, and he turns out to be the greatest guy in the history of the world. So who is this tall, dark, handsome man from the past? First of all, it should be said that other Darcy's have been floated over the years. The, okay. the latest theory, the theory of a British academic named Dr. Susan Law, is the first Earl of Morley, whose name was John Parker, and he was the husband of a friend of Jane Austen's. And we know this, Ooh. we know this how? Why is he potentially Mr. Darcy? During the writing of Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen spent some time with the couple. He matched the description. He was indeed tall, dark, and handsome and very intense. And, <laughs> Wouldn't there uh, be a lot of intense people well, in the positions yeah. of power in England? Yes, but he also had a penchant for wet white shirts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the clue we've been waiting for. And so this is good news for John Parker's distant ancestors, I suppose. Good for their single life. Well, yes and no, because part of her evidence is that John was also Jane Austen's inspiration for a scandalous character Ooh. in Mansfield Park. Oh. He was involved with a pretty scandalous divorce at the time. He had a bunch of kids out of wedlock. So if you're mm. going to go with the Mr. Darcy theory, you kind of have to also accept this. All right, Sadie Stein, thanks for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our cask strength history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1810, a piece of music that launched a billion piano recitals was <laughs> penned. Or was it? Michelle Philippi tells the tale. One of the best-known melodies ever written is also the most mysterious. You know the tune. It's Beethoven's Bagatelle Number no. 25 in A minor, better known for its dedication, Fuhr Elise, or in English, For Elise. It's probably the composer's most famous piece, 
but no one even knew it existed till 40 years after his death. When musicologist Ludwig Knoll claimed to have found the handwritten score in a private home in Munich and transcribed it for publication. Almost immediately, people had questions about the newly discovered number. Like, for instance, who was Elise? There's no record of such a woman in Beethoven's life. One theory? That Noel just mistranscribed the maestro's notoriously lousy handwriting, and that the dedication actually read for Therese, after Therese Malfatti, a woman Beethoven once asked to marry him, and who sadly refused. But there's no way to check if Noel made a mistake, because after completing his transcription, Noel said he just kind of lost Beethoven's original manuscript. No copy exists. And at least one scholar has suggested it never existed. That Noel really found some of Beethoven's rough sketches of the tune and kind of filled in the gaps himself. Now, don't misunderstand. Those handwritten sketches do exist, and they prove Beethoven wrote something very similar to the Fuhr Elise we know today. But we'll never know for sure if everything in the Noel version, the one that's in every piano student's repertoire, was actually what Beethoven intended us to hear. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Heidi Senaka. She's the owner of Kruger's American Bar, the oldest American-style bar in Vienna, Austria, the city where Beethoven became a star composer. Heidi, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire? Yeah. Hi, Rico. We came up with a drink like um, our version of an espresso martini. Okay, an espresso martini. Because um, it is said that Beethoven was not so much a lover of alcohol, but more of of coffee and you know that Vienna is very famous for its coffee culture. Of course. So we picked um, an espresso martini and we did it with a product called Asbach Uralt Selection 21, very old brandy. And very hard Um, to pronounce. uh, Yeah, (laughs) it's a very German word, but Beethoven was a German citizen, so we thought it's a good idea to pick that. Oh, that's fine. And then you add to that our house coffee, Hausbrand, and then you do a sweet topping with a lightly whipped cream that you flavor with a very famous Austrian product. It's a white chocolate liquor called Mozart liqueur. Mozart, Mozart liqueur. So Beethoven didn't didn't really make it to his own liquor, but Mozart did. So we, we picked this, this one as well. It sounds delicious, but I, I do have to tell you, it's interesting. I've spoken to a lot of people about Fur Elise this week because I knew the story was going to be on the show. And many people have terrible associations with that song because they were forced to play it when they were students. Yeah, mostly, I wanted to say so, mostly the piano players. Everybody did it. And you hear it always when there's a piano standing around somewhere, someone will always go <laughs> and, and play it. See, so I'm thinking that maybe this drink should be something that after you drink it for a while, you just get sick of it. (laughs) (laughs) You could. Um, If you you combine it with with poor Elise, definitely it will. 
Heidi Sienaka, owner of Kruger's American Bar in Vienna. We have the recipe for her drink, complete with the spelling of that German brandy, by the way, at dinnerpartydownload.org. That's right, and you can save your fingers some exercise by having our drink recipes delivered straight to your inbox every week mm. as part of our email newsletter. Sign up at dinnerpartydownload.org newsletter. And now, the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is writer and comedian Greg Proops. For years, he starred on the British and American versions of the improv comedy show Whose Line Is It Anyway? He's also appeared in everything from Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas to HBO's Flight of the Concords. Here he is to tell us about his new projects and his list. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Proops. I have a podcast called The Smartest Man in the World. Yes, it's a joke. I don't think I'm the smartest man in the world. And I have a book called The Smartest Book in the World based on the podcast. In keeping with the theme of my book, The Smartest Book in the World, here are three people that I feel that I could go head-to-head with as the smartest people in the world. First off, I would choose Fran Leibowitz. Fran Leibowitz is a a wit, a wag, a raconteur, a writer sometimes, although her writing output is uh, slim. I believe she once said the reason why she doesn't write as much as she could is because she writes using her own blood as ink. And I have noticed that too many people are writing books, period. Okay? There are too many books, the books are terrible, and this is because you have been taught to have self-esteem. The first time I encountered a friend, Leibowitz, I think I was in college, and my friend Reed, I was in an improv group with, and uh, he gave me the book um, Metropolitan Life. In that book, she discusses her activities, which mainly consist of whining and laying on the couch and smoking. Uh, And that's when I knew I loved her forever and ever. She said many funny things over the years, one of which was, children are often sticky and rarely in a position to lend you an interesting sum of money. Uh, I don't think I could best her as far as wit goes, but I'd love to sit down and drink and smoke with her and see what happens. My second choice is uh, Leonardo da Vinci. He was brilliant at a lot of things. It's always, oh, that he painted The Last Supper or whatnot. But one of his things that he did is he, he did set designs constantly, set designs for theatrical performances they put on in the court. And I saw his anatomical drawings uh, a year before in Edinburgh. They had a, an exhibit of them, and they were absolutely unbelievable. On top of that, he was evidently very funny and a tremendous musician and walked around wearing, like, pink tights and stuff. He was completely flamboyant and always had lots of young guys that were good-looking hanging around his shop. Um, Cesare Borgia was uh, the one that Machiavelli wrote The Prince about, and Cesare and his retinue of people had Machiavelli and Leonardo. So the idea of a dinner party at Cesare Borgia's house, not only is the wine going to be off the hook, you got Machiavelli on one end, you got Leonardo on the other, and then he put on these giant shows, so... uh, I, I, I would do anything to spend a, an afternoon with Leonardo. I'm going to go for the third one with Alex Trebek. I used to be pretty good at Jeopardy. I played it once long ago, and uh, I lost. But it was because I choked at the time. I think it was psychological more than anything else. But I think Alex Trebek gets overplayed because everyone thinks he knows all the answers. The answers are clearly written on a card that he's holding in his hand. So I will go against him head to head. And this is a personal challenge to you, Alex. I will bake you and and then consume you and then forget that I ate you. The thing about Alex Trebek is he, he loves classic film, and for that I love him. I was at the Turner Classic Movie Festival a week ago. 
And he was there presenting a couple of things. So I love him for that. But the reason Alex Trebek would even qualify as a genius is because he hosts the last legitimate game show on television where you're required to actually know something. Like this nine-letter French sauce is served with meat, fish, and vegetables. Or a period of history or the date of a battle. I like to see people who are smart go at each other. But when I was watching it the other night, I was disappointed. One of the questions was, this group was Smokey Robinson's backup group. And one of the guys went, the Supremes? And then the other two sat there for half an hour till time ran out. No one knew who the miracles were. And I thought, holy cow, am I really that old? I mean, they were probably in their late 20s, early 30s. And they, they don't have the burning curiosity to know that Smokey Robinson dominates their life and that they must serve under him. There is something that all three of these people have in common. Curiosity uh, and also being in the moment. Alex Trebek, for better or worse, is certainly focused on the task at hand when he's playing Jeopardy. And Leonardo, I think, spent more time thinking about why and what than anyone else. So uh, I think that's the thing they all have in common. And Fran Leibowitz is definitely in the moment and is judging your shoes. guest list from Greg Proops. His book, The Smartest Book in the World, comes out this week, and you can hear our interview with Fran Leibowitz at dinnerpartydownload.org. Yeah, check it out. Coming up, comedian Amy Schumer reflects on some interesting feedback her TV shows provoked. I just thought it was so mean that you had that guy's arms eaten off by owls. Yep, when the <laughs> Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, author Heidi Julevitz reads from her latest book. And later, NPR icon Koki Roberts suggests Congress has no manners. Goodness. Shocking. Yeah. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's comedian Amy Schumer. Her career is white hot right now, thanks to her hilarious and provocative observations about sex, being a woman, and finding oneself. Mm. Later this year, she'll appear in Judd Apatow's film Trainwreck, and the third season of her sketch show Inside Amy Schumer has just begun. Last year, I spoke to her about the show, and I first asked about a bit in which she referenced a prairie home companion. <laughs> I wondered if she was a closet tea-sipping public radio junkie. Is that how I got to do this interview? Because you were like, this is closet possible intellectual? Possibly. Um, yeah, I, I would say absolutely. The stuff that slips out of me mm. is either like infantile, mm -hmm. just a deep-seated like Muppets reference, <laughs> uh -huh. or maybe maybe kind of a New York fancy pants thing. And those are all parts of me. I'm also there is a part of me that is like kind of sorority girlish, drunk, promiscuous. Mm -hmm. But there is also a <laughs> part of me that loves like. Just, yeah, having some chamomile tea and reading. Uh, that's, it's, all, it's all in there. When you started your stand-up, did you, did you maybe have a wider palette of subjects you covered and then you kind of got more blue as you moved along? I think, well, it's so funny because I truly don't think of myself as blue. And even you saying, like, raunchy and these words, I don't associate them with my brand of humor. But I know that that's crazy. I and wish I could. Here's how crazy. Here's how I would give you examples, <laughs> but, you can't but even I can't even clip. say them on the radio. I know. And, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I've learned that this year with the premiere coming out and last year because when it's like, oh, let's, like, Letterman needs a clip or whatever. Yeah. And they're like, oh, what clip can 
can they use? And we like could not find 40 <laughs> seconds to show. Yeah. But it really is just, I just feel like I'm being truthful and honest. You know what? We did find a clip I think we can use. Oh, congratulations. So, <laughs> so this it's is just me humming in the shower. How'd you guess? No, it's from a sketch from episode one where you play a totally oblivious and kind of callous woman named Amy Schumer. Uh-huh. Oh, I know who her. Who gets an STD and desperately asks for God's help. And then God, played by the great actor yeah. Paul Giamatti, realizes he's bitten off more than he can chew with this woman. For me to undo your herpes, I have to create balance in the universe. You understand? Totally. Uh, I'd have to kill off an entire village in Uzbekistan. Yeah, whatever you think is best, do it. You'll also have to sacrifice something. Oh my God, name it. Okay, you need to stop drinking. Pass. Um, how about you just call your mother a little bit more often? That's an easy one. Mm, what is herpes exactly? It's an outbreak like once a year? Yeah. I don't know. I think I'll just take it. Okay, fine, fine. Herpes it is. So why label this very unflattering character... Amy Schumer. That's so funny. Um, see, I think there's a lot of myself in this character. I think there's a lot of you have this character. I don't have herpes. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm living STD-free, believe it or All not, right. That's for good now. To know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the show's hey, you're on premiering. Tour right now. Yeah, sure, so we'll yeah. see what happens. Who knows? Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of I think truth in that character and I do it, it is a combination of the worst things I could possibly yeah. think of and you know and, and just highlighting people's behavior and that that shallowness now what I've learned from traveling because I'm on tour all the time and talking to people who've seen the show and they everyone experiences every moment of the show different yeah so the thing that stood out to you as the most uncomfortable yeah. would be nothing to someone else True. but the like season one we did a parody of the show I Survived, mm-hmm. and it was um, Michael Showalter, and, uh, and his character's arms were eaten off by owls, and the other one wound up having to eat his own brother mm-hmm. because he was trapped in a boat. And then my character, my I Survived, was that I had to watch the movie Zookeeper on a plane. <laughs> like, that was the worst thing. But anyway, so I, I was hiking, and this, this Hasidic guy— uh, around my age came up to me and was like, he said, I think your show is really funny, but like, how could you do that? And I said, what, what? Like thinking like, any array of things. And he said, <laughs> I love the, the whole episode, but I just thought it was so mean that you had that guy's arms eaten off by owls. Like, d- don't you feel bad about that? So, the, and and yeah. I really realized in that moment, uh, the things that really make people cringe. It's people have different triggers. Yeah. But of course, as a professional, you know that sex and dismemberment and other shocking things provoke a reaction. So that's kind of why you talk about them. I mean, comedians have done that from time immemorial. Jesters would do that, you know, talk about uncomfortable things. Yeah, they just kind of like jump around uh-huh. and try to not get murdered, which <laughs> does have a lot in common with stand-up. Okay, well, we have a couple of standard questions we ask the guests on our show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? If it's harder for women, mm-hmm. I guess. In comedy. If it's harder for women in comedy, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm tired of being asked that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in, some in old stigma that I think is probably perpetuated just from journalists talking gauging about it. it so that, maybe we're not doing any favors by continuing to talk about it. So how about well, it, in the count I of three, we'll do three backwards. <laughs> and then we won't talk about it, right? Three, two, two one. Okay. Hi. How are you? Uh, so our next question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can either be a personal fact about you. Okay. Or it can be an interesting fact about the, what you're standing up. Don't run Oh, away. yeah. No, I'm just like okay. changing position. Okay. 
Have you ever seen a girl do that? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good thing you don't work blue. People would get the wrong idea. Uh, um, something that uh, something that no one knows. So, uh, I have a pretty bad scar on my leg. Okay. From a surfing accident. Okay. When Were I was, you surfing? Yes. Okay. Oh, that would be really unfortunate, yeah. right? No, a guy yeah. just mowed my legs over. <laughs> yeah, no one knows that. So, John. but you grew up in Long Island, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you were surfing. I was on surfing Long in Long Beach on Long Island. Yeah. It's a really like embarrassing story because it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like oh, I was in Hawaii and you know, fifteen footers. <laughs> I, it was like three three feet waves. I want to ask you a question. All right, do it. Um, when I just asked you if I could ask a question. Yeah. What were you afraid I would ask? What did I think you were going to ask me? Yeah. I don't know. I figured it was going to be sexual. sexual. Yeah, sexual nature. Have we talked about sex since I've been in here? Um, we talked Very a little much. bit at the top. Right, right. I, and I, you know what? I, I do talk about it because because I don't remember anybody anybody talking about it when I was younger. Mm. And I do, I do feel like a, a sexual girl. But, I mean, I would say I have just as mundane a sex life as anybody. Anybody you know. I don't mm. think it's any more adventurous <laughs> well, and interesting. You, should, you don't know. I don't know who you actually this building, like I bet there are <laughs> freaks walking around. Amy Schumer. Wow. New episodes of her comedy series Inside Amy Schumer air Tuesday nights on Comedy Central. And Rico, this could be a coincidence, right. but it's interesting. Not long after that interview, the big public radio pledge drive premium was handcuffs made yeah. from recycled tote bags. <laughs> We're just letting our freak flag fly over here. Yeah. Uh, we don't have any handcuffs, but we do have T-shirts at our DPD shop. Learn more about them at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Heidi Julevitz has penned four novels and co-edits the magazine The Believer. She's also a mom, a wife, and a sometimes resident of Maine, all of which she covers in her new book, which she wrote over the last two years, a little bit at a time. Today we overhear an excerpt. Hi, my name is Heidi Julevitz. I just published a book called The Folded Clock, a diary. It actually is a diary. I kept a diary for two years, and then I put the book together kind of like the mixed tapes I used to put together in my youth. What do I want to hear next, or what feeling do I want to feel next? This is the entry from... July 4th. Today we marched in our town's 4th of July parade. Our float was by far the best. A team of 10, mostly under 8 years old, doctors performed a rescue on a sick dolphin. Our dolphin became enamored of the crowd and swam very far ahead of our ambulance and did headstands in the middle of the street and did not appear in need of rescue. Tired of cartwheeling, the dolphin would finally drop to the ground. We'd blow our whistles, run to him with stethoscopes, roll him onto a pair of canvas firewood carriers, and heft him into the back of the ambulance. Then, healed, he'd swim off, ready to do cartwheels again. We were the crowd favorite. We were definitely winning first prize in the float contest. The judge did not agree. The judge awarded us a second-place tie. Our prize, a $20 bill, was handed to us without much pomp at the post-parade barbecue. Who won first place, we asked the judge. First place, he said, went to the farmer's market float. 
The farmer's market float consisted of three old men driving three old tractors. I was impressed that they got those old tractors running, said the judge. We shared our second-place distinction with the Girl Scout float. The Girl Scouts did nothing but ride in a truck until it was parked and the parade was over, at which point they danced atop the flatbed to funky cold Medina. We smelled a rat. Two of the judge's daughters were on the Girl Scout float. Coincidence? The farmer's market takes place on the judge's front lawn. Coincidence? No and no. I spent the rest of the day polling everyone I saw, including the woman who works in the general store, about the float situation. She's a native Mainer who doesn't speak much, or at least she doesn't speak much to me. I've decided that the most respectful way to greet her is to fail to greet her at all. She seemed to agree that we'd been screwed. Yeah, she said, who cares about a bunch of tractors? I felt vindicated. There is no higher word in our land than that of the woman at the general store. Until I remembered this. The judge is a controversial figure in our town. The woman at the general store's desire for us to win might more accurately be described as her commitment to never, ever side with the judge. The judge had arrived from a big city with big ideas about how to fix everything that was wrong here, in his opinion. He was going to install a ferry system to bring tourists from the national park that was 11 miles away by boat, 60 by land. He wanted to install low-income housing on his back property. Not even the low-income people in town liked this idea. Then he almost burned his barn down by leaving a bag of live stove ashes on the floor. This gave everyone permission to officially discredit him. And then to ease up on him a bit. Now that he's been proven incompetent, he is tolerated. Heidi Julevitz reading an entry from her new book, The Folded Clock, A Diary. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, Nashville hot chicken, go. Um, jam band. I would have guessed blues, but we were both wrong. Okay. Nashville hot chicken is a type of fried chicken popular in Nashville that is hot. Ah, we were we were thinking too hard there. As is our want. Uh, <laughs> this dish has been slowly showing up outside of Nashville, and on Monday, L.A. will get a taste when Chef Johnny Zone serves it at a pop-up night at the restaurant Barrel and Ashes. So I headed over there to meet with Johnny and the restaurant's chef de cuisine, Mike Kayakina, who specializes in Southern cooking. They both met while working under Master Chef Thomas Keller. I first asked Johnny to explain a little more about what hot chicken is. So Nashville hot chicken is a dish that originated in like the 1930s, and it's basically like a southern fried chicken that's coated in this hot pepper paste. It's like three parts cayenne, one part a little bit of sugar, and hot oil poured over those spices to toast them. And after the chicken's fried, you coat it in that pepper paste, and you can go extremely hot, or you can go mild, or you can go not that hot at all. So how is that different than uh, buffalo wings? So buffalo wings are completely different than Nashville hot chicken. They have a wet kind of sauce, you know, like a Frank's or, or a Crystal's hot sauce. You know, a buffalo wings, it's hard to keep them really crispy because they're, they're coated in a wet sauce. What, where did this come from? You say it originated in the 1930s, John? Yeah, so in the 1930s, there was this guy, Andre Prince Jeffries. And I think it was either him or one of his brothers was a womanizer. 
right? So he would he would like you know like cheat on their women and is this apocryphal or do we know this for sure? <laughs> well, I mean it's hearsay. There's no written documents stating you know where it originated. Yeah, they're not like Nashville hot chicken historians. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there is. But yeah, so this guy was a womanizer, and basically uh, the woman in the morning um, she was cooking him breakfast. His wife or girlfriend, I guess. Yeah, and she made him some fried chicken, and she wanted to burn his palate. She wanted to she wanted to destroy him. Yeah. So this was a revenge food, basically? It's, it started as revenge, just a woman trying to get this guy back. So it turns out, after the guy ate it, he ended up really liking it. And then they opened up a little chicken shack called Princess. How big a deal is this in Nashville? This is, it's, it's really starting to kind of blow up now. There's about, I think, 14 restaurants serving Nashville hot chicken, or restaurants that specialize in uh, Nashville hot chicken. Oh, actually, this reminds me, uh, Mike, you are kind of a specialist in Southern cuisine. I've asked this question of, of a number of different people, but I'm, I'm interested in what you think. Why is it places that typically have hotter climes like the South, like super spicy food. Yeah, all over the world in the hottest areas, if you look at India, the, the cuisine is very hot. Thailand, the food is very hot. Number one, it's comforting, I think. It's, there's something about the endorphin rush that you get when you eat something really hot. There's something about the sweat that's gonna cool you down a little bit. And you know, maybe some of it's a dare too, a little bit. It's a more of a macho culture. Yeah, right, exactly. I see, it's also part of the experience. So all of a sudden eating is not just getting full it's like oh man remember that time you went down to princess and oh my god we're sweating you know we had to change your shirt because so much sweat was coming off your back it's a, it's a memory i mean a big thing in thomas keller cooking is like he wants to create memories or invoke memories something um that's so fun about southern cuisine too is the the community aspect of it everyone gathered around the grill and you know it's long cooking times and you're eating with your hands a lot and your fingers and all your senses are involved and i think that's a big part of it as well Although, uh, when you are eating hot chicken and the paste gets on your hands, do not touch your face. I'm, I'm serious, like you laughing, but I'm saying don't touch your face, don't touch your nose, any, any sensitive things. All right, let's, let's make some memories for me here. Wait, wait, medium hot? Yeah, medium hot sounds good. Or hot? Well, I'll do medium hot and I'll do hot. And is there a way that uh, this stuff is served typically? I mean... Yeah, generally um, how I've had it, you get white bread on the bottom, chicken on top, uh, and then you have pickles on top of that. The purpose of the white bread is it soaks up that paste. It's delicious. And it also kind of soaks up the heat, too. And then the pickles, what they do is they cut through the richness of the fried chicken and the, the spice, too. So it kind of cools you down. All right, let's do it. Uh, so here we go. Here's the Nashville hot chicken. We've got medium hot and uh, very hot. And they look, it is, it's like an entire chunk of chicken. It's not like a pulled meat or anything. It's on the bone and just served directly on top of the bread. And it looks delicious. And I see what you're saying now. It's not that kind of gloppy, gluey yeah. sauce. You smell the toasted chilies. You know, it's not just like a raw. When you have, um, you know, you're talking about the difference between buffalo wings. When you have that, it's a vinegar-based sauce. And so it's a very, like, raw chili taste. This is toasted. It gives more depth of flavor, brings out some of the sugars in it. I'm pulling the pickles off. This is the medium hot one. All right, here we go. Oh, wow, that is juicy. No, it's not too hot. I can handle this. That's what everybody says in the beginning. They're like, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, yeah, it's building in heat. It's still not too bad, though. Oh, my God, that is good. And it is true. This, Unlike buffalo chicken, it doesn't have that kind of buttery feeling. Actually, it reminds me a little bit of Sichuan or Thai-style spicy, crispy food. Definitely. In a, a lot of Thai food, there is a balance of sugar and spice. Counteracts, you know, the, the heat of it by sweetening it just a little bit. Um, I'm going to try the hot stuff. 
Holy cow, that's delicious. Oh, now I'm getting some heat. <laughs> There's one uh, story about putting the toilet paper in the freezer before you have it so that the next day it's ready to go. <laughs> Chef's Johnny Zone and Mike Kayakina. Johnny's doing a Nashville hot chicken pop-up at the L.A. restaurant Barrel and Ashes on Monday, May 4th. And he's about to launch Howlin' Ray's hot chicken food truck. And we're going to take a break. Coming up, the director of the new Kurt Cobain documentary finds humor in the darkness when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll speak with acclaimed director Brett Morgan about Montage of Heck, his new documentary about Kurt Cobain. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Cokie Roberts. She is best known to audiophiles as a commentator for National Public Radio and also a political commentator for ABC News. She has won countless awards, including three Emmys, and she has also written a bunch of best-selling books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, We Are Our Mother's Daughters. This month, she released a new book called Capital Dames, The Civil War and the Women of Washington, 1848 to 1868. And, Koki, it is an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you so much, Rico. And it, it's a bestseller now, too. It'll be on the list this Sunday. Oh, so, well. You know, what else is new? Oh, it's such a relief. <laughs> it's, you know, just get that over with. Very quickly, we wanted to ask you, you started with NPR in 1970. 78, is that right? Officially, I actually started in 1977, but they didn't hire me until 1978 oh, because they were never quick to hire. Still aren't. Uh, well, we, we are, know. We are <laughs> relative newcomers to this business. How do we become huge public radio icons? Real quick. You just keep doing what you're doing, guys. It'll it'll happen any second now. <laughs> any second. I think that I need to change my name because we have Rico and Koki and Brendan. That's there's not really a lot of zing to that. Now Brendan, you need to be like bingo or something. <laughs> bingo. Rico, Koki, and Bingo would Bingo. be an awesome legal team. <laughs> all right. And then all actually. the children will sing that horrible song. Bingo was his name oh. Yeah, it's all right. so awful. Well, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to take that up with my lawyers right after this conversation. Yeah. Great. So uh, let's turn to this book. Um, in it, you follow several women who rose to prominence in the wake of the Civil War. I was struck by Elizabeth Keckley, a former slave and civil rights activist, but who's the standout for you? Who's the person who's stuck in your mind after? You know, I'm never good at the standout because people are so different from each other. They're mm. people that you'd like to have dinner with, you know. Well, that's or, a good thing for our show. Yeah. <laughs> who would that be? <laughs> there you go, right. Virginia Clay, who was the wife of uh, an Alabama senator, Clement Clay, and she went on after the war to be a big suffragist. She was totally fun and delightful. Um, most of the Southern women were women you'd want to hang with for dinner. Um, uh, <laughs> so but, nothing's um, changed, basically. No. I mean, Ver- Verena Davis, Jefferson Davis's wife, she apparently was such a great con conversationalist, that people all wrote about that. When she moved to New York, which was a scandal after the war, when, you know, <laughs> the, the first lady of the Confederacy moving to New York. Oh, the Yankee town. Oh, it was bad. But she ran a salon, and people loved coming because she was so interesting. So there are people like that who you'd want to just be with, and then there are people you'd admire, uh, yeah. like Dorothy Dix or Clara Barton, who did remarkable things. You, you mentioned Verena Davis, uh, who moved to New York. You make the point generally, at one point you talk about how women were able to kind of put the bitterness of the battle behind them 
when the men of the South were still, I think your quote is, draping themselves in the Confederate flag and mourning the lost cause. Right. Why, why do you think that is? I think in Marina Davis's case, there's twofold. One, she kept all of her friends. Uh, she was very close to a lot of women in the North. But secondly, she knew from the beginning that the Confederacy was a lost cause and wrote it to her mother as she was going to Richmond to assume the duties of the First Lady of the Confederacy. She basically said, we can't win this thing. She did her duty. She did what she was supposed to do. But then after the war... It was important to her to bring the sides together. So she had a very public meeting with Julia Grant, the wife of Ulysses S. Grant. It was page one news in all of the newspapers and a statement of reconciliation. But why do you think that uh, women were more likely to do this than men? Women are just better. Um, (laughs) You won't have an argument with us here. That's the name of your last book. (laughs) Women are better. I think really they don't have to wear this big public mantle of righteous cause, you know. Um, Mm. They can actually tell the truth. That's why their letters, their letters really are considerably better than men's letters. Men's letters are, I always (laughs) joke that it's as if they were written by those bronze and marble statues, you know. They are heavy and and pompous and edited because the men know they're going to be preserved and published. And the Mm. women just write letters, and they're fun, and they're funny, and they're frank, and they they say things like, Stephen Douglas smells bad, and, you know, and they they tell the truth, and that's great. Well, this is the kind of honesty that we're seeking from you as we pose to you (laughs) our listeners' dilemmas. Are you ready for these? Well, the trouble is etiquette sort of requires not being honest. Or being passive-aggressive. Let's see what comes out. (laughs) Here's, uh, Here's something from Becky in Cincinnati, Ohio. Becky writes, can you come up with a better idiom than with all due respect? In this day and age, <laughs> the subtext is almost always, I do not respect you, but. it's <laughs> a good question. Right, this is like what we hear in Congress all the time, you know, or my esteemed colleague, right? Yes. <laughs> that esteemed part they don't mean for a second. Um, <laughs> but how about, I mean, you could do kind of modern psycho speak. You know, you could say, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> is that any better, really? I mean, I don't, well, I don't buy that either. It's the way young people talk. Well, I think what you point out, Koki, is that in both those instances, you're thinking of a third party watching you speak, right? Because if it's just a one-on-one conversation, you may not even say with all due respect. But if there's an audience of voters... No, you'd probably say, get real. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, shut up is one way that you could replace. (laughs) Instead of with all due respect, shut up and listen to me. Well, that's pretty, you know, in, in most of my professional life, I have been the only woman in the room. And really, that's kind of how men treat you, is shut up and listen to me. This is this mm. is even after a, a storied career like your own? Yeah, they just wait for your lips to stop moving. <laughs> well, we're I'm listening. Afraid, I'm afraid to transition to the next question, lest you think I'm shutting you up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. But we have to. Keep, but, but, keep, keep going. Keep going. There's a clock. <laughs> uh, here's something from Jane in Garfield Heights, Ohio. Jane writes, how does one express skepticism regarding the source of a person's story or the source of their parroted opinion without risking a heated political or ideological debate? I guess that this would be an important skill to know in Washington, D.C. Yeah, well, it's hard to, you know, not have heated debates. Um, you could do sort of... Really? I hadn't heard that. And I listened to NPR. (laughs) The only source you need. (laughs) There you go. I told you, passive-aggressive works, (laughs) Koki. You're doing well. (laughs) Really? 
I yeah. hadn't heard it like that. But I do think you could say, really, I, really, that that sounds sketchy to me. You know, where, mm-hmm. where do you think you got that? I think that's a polite enough thing to say. The, the thing that I'm always... very polite. I mean, I was raised in the South in an era. Um, long before you people were even thought about. So I, I really do have excellent manners. And so if I would say really, I think it's okay. What would Cokie Roberts do? Think that to yourself, Jane. <laughs> All right. Here's something from Nicholas in Hesperia, California. Nicholas writes, what should we know about etiquette if we are ever invited to a White House dinner? Oh. I wonder why he asked you. Well, the first thing you should know is that you're not allowed to refuse it. In fact, Mm. in the history book that I just wrote, uh, Capital Dames, uh, Abigail Brooks Adams did not go to a dinner at the White House, did not cancel a previous engagement, and got in all kinds of trouble. And her husband forced her to go and apologize to President Buchanan because she had breached etiquette uh, so severely. Is that still the case today? Yes. Although you might be a hero on some networks. Well, that, that's... <laughs> you could raise a lot of money for the Super PAC circuit. We're asking etiquette. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's yes. a different whole category. Etiquette and politics, two very different beasts. That's correct. Right. Uh, Koki Roberts, we are sadly out of time. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you, guys. Nice to be with you. Koki Roberts, her latest book is called Capital Dames, The Civil War and the Women of Washington, 1848 to 1868. And if you have a question of etiquette or maybe you just need a nickname, send us your query via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Montage of Heck is a new documentary about Kurt Cobain, which airs on HBO May 4th. The title comes from an audio montage Cobain made in the late 80s, before his band Nirvana became one of the biggest acts in the world. Frances Bean Cobain, Kurt's daughter who executive produced the film, gave director Brett Morgan full access to her father's home recordings, notebooks, videos, and drawings. And Morgan uses the materials to let Kurt tell his own story. Morgan's no stranger to movies about larger-than-life figures. His doc about film director Robert Evans, The Kid Stays in the Picture, was widely acclaimed. When I met with him, I asked him to tell me about Cobain's youth in the small logging town of Aberdeen, Washington, circa 1967. I think that Kurt had a very idyllic first couple years in this world. He was uh, the firstborn of uh, a very large extended family with several uncles and aunts and who would all fight over him. He was absolutely adorable. And I think that's a part of this story, too, is how attractive he was as a child. So people were fawning over him. Hmm. And he was the center of of, of attention at every function. But then he went from being the golden child, almost literally with his white hair, white blonde hair, uh, to becoming a hot potato once he was diagnosed as hyperactive. Uh, and then his parents divorced, and we watch home videos of him being passed between his parents, Wendy Cobain and Donald Cobain, uh, and his grandparents and his neighbors. No one really even wanted him around. Yeah, no one, no one wanted him, man. I mean, look, Wendy says that, uh, you know, Wendy views it totally differently. You know, in her, mm. in her mind, she never rejected Kurt, and that, you know, he, he would come over for lunch and that her door was always open. And... I was like, well, Wendy, the the person saying this in the movie is Kurt. And she goes, well, he that's just not true. You know, Kurt lied. And, and I said, look, whether he didn't have a place to stay for one day or one year, it really doesn't matter. He experienced that as a form of rejection and abandonment. Yeah. 
So the first part of your documentary looks primarily at his childhood and how it influenced his career. The second part was development as a musician. Uh, and then Nirvana's album, Nevermind, comes out, becomes a huge success. And we watch Kurt trying to cope with the pressures of being a celebrity as well as struggling with heroin addiction. Now, you have lots of home videos from that time. And I'm wondering, how did it feel to kind of dig into day in, day out of his life at this point? Because even watching them made me feel a little sick to my stomach because uh, it was so sad. Yeah, it's weird that you looped them all together, though, and said that you got sick by them. Because I'm like, as you said that, I'm thinking to myself that Kurt and Courtney stuff before Francis is born, I find hilarious with an uh, undercurrent of darkness that I don't think the audience really registers. The undercurrent of darkness is they're constantly talking about the media mocking their image in the media or the way other people perceive them. And that, to me, was really disturbing. But on the surface of it, it's Lucy and Ricky, and it's really <laughs> funny. This is our house. This is where we live. I know it looks disgusting now, but sometimes it's nice. I mean, after when I clean it, because no one else does. And this is the toilet. This is, um, this is hey. me. Hello? Do we have a turkey baster? <laughs> what? Like, it's laugh out loud funny. And, you know, we were at South by Southwest. I couldn't hear the dialogue because people were laughing yeah. so loud. Well, I, I think I just locked into the underlying darkness part and, and the desperation of addiction. Well, their, they were... their apartment is like this dingy mess. Their bodies look so unhealthy. Yeah, but, you know, um, a lot of that stuff, you know, the, the bathroom scene, he wasn't, they were sober. And I know that for a fact because mm -hmm. I know where that tape began. I mean, the later stuff for sure. Yeah, that stuff is so disturbing, man. It's so yeah. ugly and it's brutal and you don't want to see it. And I hate that it's there, but it serves a very valuable purpose. You know, I felt that they were earned, that they would come at the end of the film. And it is in that moment that you actually are looking at Kurt completely doped up. Yeah, holding his baby. Yeah, and that's the thing is it's just not showing a junkie. It's showing a father yeah. and a junkie and the struggle and the battle. And he's losing the battle and succumbing to the demons. And, and what's so tragic is you see what a good father he is. I mean, that's the thing that just breaks my heart is like, and you know, it breaks my heart for Francis because I feel she was deprived of a wonderful father. You know, I think Kurt mm -hmm. had, you know, he was, he, he, you know, some men don't take to newborns, but not Kurt. Well, one time I asked, I think during the interview, I asked Courtney, if, you know, she thought Kurt was a good dad. And she said, for, you know, for a junkie, I, you know, I, I want to ask you about Courtney's involvement uh, in this film. She gave you several interviews, unfettered access to the storage locker of Kurt's things. But she's a pretty divisive figure among Nirvana fans, Cobain fans. Uh, in your movie, she even reads a letter from a fan accusing her of ruining him. Going into this project, what were your thoughts? How did you decide you were going to deal with the friction that kind of always surrounds her? Now, the thing with Courtney is there's the media perception of Courtney and then there's Kurt's perception of Courtney. And what mattered to me was Kurt's perception of Courtney. And um, as you're sculpting this as a director, it, the, one of the big challenges was how do I get the audience to liberate themselves from the media representations of Courtney and allow themselves op to be open enough to experience her through Kurt's eyes. Yeah. Um, and I, won't, I will say that wasn't incredibly that challenging because you look at the footage and there's a lot of love. And, I, you know, the footage that we have in that 
film of Kurt and Courtney goes from their first early, early meetings in October 91. And then um, we pick it up in February 92. And certainly there's no question that they're completely compatible. And then, you know, the last time we see them, it's um, Christmas 93. And in that moment, Courtney says, you know, with pure, genuine look in her eye, you know, I'm really happy. And Kurt says... You know, me too. And it's totally pure, man. It is kind of a touching moment. And yet, it's the last time we see them. And not long after that, Kurt kills himself. And your movie ends kind of abruptly with with a black screen. And then you tell us the date he killed himself. Did you choose to stop there because Kurt was no longer creating anything? And since his output was the centerpiece of the film... It didn't make sense to yeah. keep going or... That's a good... That's true, man. There's some truth to that. But really, there's no way to neatly end this movie. You know, mm. he died. He's not here anymore. Yeah. And I wasn't going to wrap it up in a bow and then mm-hmm. cut to a bunch of people, you know, around with flowers and a, some, some funeral or... You know, Kurt had a very painful life, but his legacy lives on through all these people all over the world and... He's touched so many lives, and you know, if, if, you know, that's that wouldn't be honest. That'd be disingenuous. That'd be like a Hollywood ending. Yeah. And death is sudden, suicide is sudden, and there's no catharsis. When I when I showed the film to Francis the first time, she said, "You know, what my favorite part was." I said, "What was that?" And she said, "The end." And I said, "What part of the end?" And she she said, "You know, when he cuts the black." And first, I had a certain knee jerk reaction, like, "Wait a second, is she telling me her favorite part of this film?" I just like worked my ass off on this film and her favorite part of the movie is the black leader but um i knew what she meant brett morgan his hbo documentary film kurt cobain montage of heck will air on hbo may 4th all right and ladies and gentlemen that's the dinner party download for this week The show would not be possible without the hard work of our producer, Jackson Musker. Our associate digital producer is Christina Lopez, and our associate producer is Nina Patak. Thanks also to Garrett Lang and Jeff Peters, who engineered this time around. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And if you like the show, we encourage you to go to iTunes and leave a message saying so. It just takes a second, and it really helps us out. And if you live in Minnesota and really like the show, you should be aware we're coming to hang out with you next week. That's right. Saturday, May 9th, we are taping the show at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. Guests include musicians Angel Olsen and Lizzo, author Marlon James, and comedian Michael Ian Black. There are still some seats left at FitzgeraldTheater.org. Grab them. Thanks for listening. Bon appétit. Bon appétit.